Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. This episode is brought to you by 3M, PPG, and Breakthrough Academy. Welcome to Paint Ed. My name is Torlando. I'm your host today. Hey folks, how you doing out there? We've got a, a great show planned for you today. I'm really excited to have this guest on. Um, I wanted to do something a little different, a little uh, a topic today that I think is going to, I feel like it's been on the minds of, of a handful of people. I've seen it being asked about in the groups. And so, you know, generally I'm bringing in, you know, different types of, uh, uh, you know, business coaches, tech people, you know, uh, people from within industry. Uh, Today, I decided to bring on somebody who knows um, firsthand experience in the topic of ESOP. Um, That's employee um, stock options. And uh, he's a gentleman named Kevin Johnson with Cola Keen. And uh, they're kind of a a regional player, a business that a good sized business has been around for uh, decades and decades and decades and uh, completely different industry, but they employed the ESOP model into their company. And, and so I wanted to bring them on and have this conversation. Before we head into the show, I just wanted to remind you guys that you can listen to this show and uh, you know some of my other co-hosts that are out there, Chris Moore, Brandon Pierpont, Chris, um, Nick Slavic. Uh, all of our shows are available on PCA Overdrive as well as um, other streaming services like Apple uh, Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Um, if you have not checked out the app though, PCA Overdrive, I highly recommend this app. Five nine and nine a month for uh, non-members free with your PCA membership. Go to PCAPED.org to download it and find it in the app store. Uh, what else can I tell you, folks? Um, my my trade school, my virtual trade school has gone live. Um, if you go to craftsmancainter.com backslash trade school or you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, uh, Craftsman Painter, I have been publishing video content, video courses, completely public, completely free, that are covering um, in-depth topics like social branding, estimating, uh, I've got crew building, recruiting, that kind of thing. And these delivering a proposal, delivering the price and the proposal. I know a lot of people like to, they want to figure out how do I deliver a price on the spot? How do I deliver that proposal? Um, that, that, that video is great. You got to check that out. Uh, I highly recommend it. And if, uh, what I will tell you about this stuff is that I don't, it's not the simple basics okay yes we're talking about estimating but we're taking it about 10 notches up we're bringing in discussions of economics how to how to build your mar- marginal cost how to understand your marginal cost how to build a marginal revenue um how to how to do price custom third degree price customization you know what that is you know that this is some really fun stuff um high level mba level type of content and uh it's all completely free 
course, I do offer one-on-one -on -one coaching to help you implement it. And so uh, just reach out to me on uh, Facebook or um, uh, LinkedIn or, or just you know, find my email. It's out there. But you can go to grasspainter.com backslash Orlando. You can find it. All that content, of course, is coming from the book uh, Sprint on Amazon.com. Just search for uh, my name, Orlando, and the word Sprint, and you'll get it. All right. So one of the reasons that I find this topic really interesting, the topic of these is because I like to identify different ways to incentivize employee retention. But then I'm also thinking about the future. What's going to happen when I'm ready to retire? What's going to happen when I'm ready to, you know, move on to the next phase of life? Um, if there's one thing that I have discovered uh, in my short time on in this world is that, you know, a full career is a long time to do one thing. And you might get to the point where maybe you want to try something else. You might get to the point where, yeah, you are nearing retirement and you don't know how you're going to pass the business on. Maybe you don't have, uh, you know, maybe your kids don't want the business. Uh, maybe you are looking around and you can't find anybody um, who's, who's willing to buy it. Um, that's that's a thing. You know, I, I, I remember last year I was talking to my parents. They have a, <clears throat> they own a cleaning company and they got a call from this business that was trying to um, sell their company to them for, I think it was about $250,000. And my parents were like, we're already completely busy. You know, well, why would we pay that much money to, to buy it, to buy a business? And, um, and then a lot of, uh, and, and subsequently a lot of the customers from that business called my parents and said, Hey, I think my cleaners are uh, getting ready to retire. And so I need a new company. So passing on your business in the trades is actually a pretty difficult thing to do. And, um, you, you know, finding a buyer, uh, a lot of people end up never finding one. And so they wind the business down and, um, you know, then it feels like you don't have much to show for, uh, for what you built. I think that the ESOP is going to be <clears throat> a, a reasonable alternative. I think it'll be a reasonable alternative to helping you with your succession plan. So I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, shoot, let's let's just get into it. Let's just jump right into this conversation and uh, bring on Mr. Kevin Johnson uh, to the show. Here we go. In three, two, one. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the show. Welcome to Pete Ed. Hey, it's great to be Great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about ESOPs. I uh, I love to talk about ESOPs. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, Kevin, tell us a little bit about your um, your history, your role. You're the CEO at Colacine, but this business, how long has the business been around? Yeah, Cocaline has been around 85 years. Come August of uh, this year, and. Uh, Started out actually a female entrepreneur whose husband had passed away, um, oh. believe it or not, and she bought uh, into the gasoline station business in 1938. Oh, wow. Pretty amazing story, actually. Um, so 
it was a family owned business for about 70 years, the Myers family um, in Southern Indiana. And then about 14, 15 years ago, uh, our employee group, uh, we, we formed a, an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan is uh, the, the, the term there, ESOP, employee stock ownership plan. And we initially bought 40% of the company and then over time bought some more shares and then ultimately bought 100% of the company. So, Got it. Got it. So what was the um, what was the the kind of the instigator for forming that employee group and deciding to, um, you know, form an ESOP? Because here you have an 85 year history. This is really you're really on year 14 or 15 on this. What was that initial deciding factor of like, let's let's look into this as an option? The uh, the key leaders uh, at Coquilene, uh, were getting to an age where they were starting to think about retirement. So they had a number of options, a uh, good, strong company with, you know, 70 year history. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I honestly can't remember exactly where the, how the ESOP hit our radar, but we started looking at it at the time I was, um, CFO executive, uh, VP and, I come from kind of a CPA background. So myself and the CEO at the time started uh, diving into it. We spent a year or two kind of studying it. And um, it, it just was determined to be a way that the family could sell the business to uh, the leadership team that was in place. And mm -hmm. Several of the family owners, the, they were able to stay in the mix for a number of years. So they were still, mm -hmm. they benefited from the ESOP structure also, but it was a, it was a great way to transition the business to the, to the next leadership team is the, yeah. was kind of the yeah. primary motivator. I'm Prith Fever County, and we've got recruiting best practices, pain and training resources, and a bare pro sweepstakes coming your way in this PCA Minute. It's recruiting season. If you're wondering where all the good candidates are, we got you covered. There's an entire section on PCA Overdrive dedicated to hiring, recruiting, and retention. Curated from your favorite podcasts, expo sessions, and virtual events, you'll learn to hire and keep rock stars in your company. Just look for the hiring, recruiting, and retention lane on PCA Overdrive. Get your crew field ready faster with PCA's painter training. PCA Overdrive provides free access to painter training videos in English and Spanish. Our training portal offers a more in-depth learning experience through a guided pathway. Each module has an assessment and certificates are awarded at the completion of each level. To learn more, go to pcapaintad.org training. Finally, enter for a chance to win the Bear Pro Painter Sweepstakes. Price includes $5,000 worth of Bear, Kills, Graco, and 3M products. Visit pca.so slash Bear Pro Sweepstakes to enter now. Right, right. You know, I, I, I've known a few um, multi-generational business owners, second generation, third generation, um, and you know, the, what I always hear from that second or third generation owner is that 
the last thing I wanted to do was take over my dad's company. <laughs> and then they end up doing it. Um, but I've also seen instances, especially in some of the, um, you know, locally owned paint stores where the, the owner just has kids who just don't want the business, period. Um, I don't know if that was the case here, but it, but it does sound like um, there needed to be some consideration for that transition from generational transfer of ownership to um, executive ownership. Is that, is that fair? It is. Uh, you know, in this case, there, there was a fourth generation that was still in the mix when we, we formed it, and, and, and it probably could have could have continued in the family. Um, but it, you know, there were a lot of other key leadership members who had been with the company a while and, you know, were interested in staying long-term. Mm -hmm. The other thing that is important to understand is there are some pretty significant tax benefits to an ESOP mm. where, the profits of the company flow through this ESOP trust and it's, it's a non-taxable trust. Oh. So it's, it's, it's kind of like having your shares inside of a 401k or an IRA, you know, as those shares appreciate and you have gains and dividends and all that, you're not paying taxes on those. Yeah. Until the until the time that you withdraw, you know, once you start taking money out of an IRA or a 401k, you obviously start right. paying taxes then. But during. So, in effect, the, the corporation is all that K1 income or partnership income. Yeah. Or it flows into this non-taxable trust. Which and, and therefore and then those taxes. Yeah. No, go so ahead. then when it's so that so what I was going to say is so so if the profits flow into the ESOP trust, a non-taxable trust, when they're pulled out, they're going to get taxed. But the people who are pulling it out are the employees that own those shares. That's right. That's right. That's compelling. Yeah. That's very compelling. It, it it it's pretty significant benefit. And yeah. But even besides the tax benefit. The employee group, everybody in the employee group, assuming they stay on board for, like, we start allocating shares after one year. Mm -hmm. They vest after two years, 20%. And then every year thereafter, they vest another 20%. So at year six, if they stay to year six, they're 100% vested in the shares that have been allocated to them over that first six years. Right. So it's right, right. it's a it's not only a tax benefit, but it's a it truly is an employee benefit under an assumption. You know, the, the company has to do well and the stock price has to do well. Right. Sure, sure, sure. And and I and, and we're going to dive more into that. Um, what I want to know, uh, you know, from your perspective, what are the conditions or the scenarios where a company would begin to consider an ESOP because what I'll tell you is that a lot of our um, a lot of our listeners here, I would say most of them aren't necessarily operating an 85 year old company. 
Um, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them actually are first time, um, you know, first generation owners. Um, maybe they've been in business for five, 10 years. Um, you know, what, what is the main consideration for creating and forming ESOP? Um, I, I'll kind of go back to what I said earlier that if you have, um, if you have a leadership team that you have confidence in and you've got a good employee group and you're, you're starting to think about, as you mentioned in, in your um, intro succession planning, what, you know, what can I, what am I going to do? It really, in my opinion, is one of the most democratic and beneficial ways to take care of your employees. Now, I will tell you that normally what I understand, and I'm not, I don't want to pretend to be an expert, you know, there, you want to get ESOP attorney or somebody in the mix typically, but as I understand it, you better have about 10 employees to make it make sense or else you run mm -hmm. into some, some top heavy rules and regulations. But if you have 10 plus employees and you're confident in, in the company's performance and the people that are, then it's, it's a great option to consider as, as a it. succession plan. Got it. Got it. And, and also I would, I would think that it has, you know, more immediate um, returns, you know, I mean, there, there's so much, there's so many things that can happen as a leader in your life to where, um, you know, it's like cutting the head off of a snake. Um, you know, you could, you could get sick, you could go on, you know, you could go get disabled, you could, um, you know, going through a divorce can, can really set you back, you know, emotionally and spiritually and, and professionally. Um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong as, as a leader. And what it sounds like to me is that if you have a team of employers or a group of employees who have actual ownership in the company, that the likelihood of the company moving forward um, in your, you know, little period of, of, you know, needing to, you know, take some personal time to sort stuff out. You know, let's say you, let's say you end up in a coma. This is extreme, but let's just say you end up in a coma and, uh, and then you wake up, you know, a month later, um, you know, who was making the decisions, you know, what happened to your company? Did everybody just disband and, you know, all of a sudden you wake up and there's nothing. Um, it's, it feels like this is, a, this could be a little bit of a security, uh, system in place to help that business run, even if you are, um, you know, for whatever reason, um, incapacitated for a time. No, that's a, that's a really good point. And what I, what I would say is that day one, when the ESOP, you've got an ESOP structure in place you don't have to change any of the leadership or, you know, if, if you're running the company, you can continue to run that company. Um, but it does over time, you're almost forced to bring forced is maybe a bad word, but what we have found is, you know, we were family run 
they had control of all the key decisions and so forth. Well, day one, they were still very involved. And, mm-hmm. but over time, it, it helps to transition and you almost have to start training your next leaders, your next executive team to think like owners, right? And right. every year they start building up more value. So the first two or three years, it's it's not a ton of money, but we're at a point now where it's it's substantial money in a lot of people's accounts and they they do think more like owners. They, you know, we, we recently were looking at an opportunity and it was a, you know, it was going to be a pretty big deal and we were going to have to take on a lot of debt to do the transaction. And really the ESOP kind of, we backed off and we had more of a democratic group decision that was made that said, uh, let's not take on that much risk. Um, so yes, I, I guess I'm just trying to reinforce what you're saying that I clearly believe strongly that that an ESOP can be a very interesting, good way to 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 introduce succession planning, leadership development, and it kind of evolves naturally because the ownership and the shares, you know, start accumulating and it becomes real money. Right, right, yeah. No, this, these are these are excellent points. So, um, quick, quick, just like technical question that I that I keep keeps coming to my mind that I, I want to you know get out there before we you know, keep going forward. Um, what type of entity do you need to be structured as um, in order to um, you know? Because a lot of people start as LLCs or S corps. Is there is there any um, is there any structure that you need to be? The most common um, structure is a, um, I think, is an LLC structure, and that that has a little more to do with just legal protection, right? Like mm-hmm. most attorneys these days advise LLC structure because it it has some protection for the owner, regardless of whether you're an ESA. Most of them are LLCs, and they are. I get, I'm, I'm not, even though I used to be in the world of the CPA tax world, but I think it's the S corp status kind of where it's a K one flow through like, so the ESOP trust. I would have presumed it'd be a C corp. Um, uh, actually, if it, it, it can be a C corp, but most of them are S corps because what, if you think about a C corp, it gets taxed at the corporate level. Mm-hmm. instead of the income flowing through to the shareholders. So in an S-corp, the income flows through to the shareholders. Well, in this case, the ESOP trust, as I said earlier, owns oh, okay. the company. And it so the income flows into this non-taxable ESOP trust. Got it. So all that, yeah. all that, all that money that's in the ESOP trust is considered pass-through income. That's correct. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That now makes it's sense. not it when you say pass through income. Yes, it's it's a it's a K one allocation. It's not passive income. It's right. basically non taxable income inside that trust again until somebody takes the money out and then it gets taxed to them personally as a pension benefit. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. Yep. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. So, um, so more on, on how it works, um, in terms of getting it, getting it set up and then, you know, it, uh, announcing it to your team, implementing it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if we're, if we're like, okay, this does seem like a, a good option for my company. I've got 10 or more employees. We're structured as an S corp. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm ready to, to spread the ownership around and, and, you know, get some of this, you know, bring some of the benefit to my employees, my key leadership so that we are all, um, a little bit more invested. Um, what are some of my first steps? What I, what I think most people benefit from is there's an association called the ESOP Association, just the ESOP Association. This is the national, one of the most recognized national groups. Mm-hmm. And they actually have an Indiana chapter, but they have, most states have, there's a, a lot of information on their, you know, ESOP 101 kind of classes and opportunities to learn more. It, it really, first step, in my opinion, is the the owners and, and some of the key leaders should probably go to one or two of those seminars and, and programs to just better understand it. Second step, it, it, it does require um, some legal help um, mm-hmm. because you have to set this ESOP trust up. The other thing, and it, it's probably the most critical thing, is you need to have a valuation done of the company, right? Because the ESOP trust is what's buying those the company and it's got to be determined to be a fair fair value because they obviously like any pension plan or anything like that they don't want it to be an overstated value and so forth so right getting getting a value on the company is critical and then obviously the ESOP trust normally you get some outside support there. You can have an outside trustee in the mix and that outside trustee kind of has to come to terms and in agreement with the seller. For example, if it's you that are, you know, you, Mm -hmm. you would have to agree to the sales price and the ESOP trust has to agree to the purchase price. Right, 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 right. And, And that's, that's, that's really that's really step one, because if you can't yeah. come to an agreement on the value, then it's, you're probably not going to get it across the finish line. Right. Right. So, so we should probably, you know, just spend a little bit of uh, time, you know, demystifying that, um, that idea a little bit for our audience um, without maybe going too much in the weeds, but uh, we'll just use some examples here. Now, um, I can share a little bit about what I know about our industry in terms of how valuation is calculated. It's, um, it's, it's fairly simple. Basically what we're looking at is the, the cash flow, the profit. Um, some, you know, often you'll hear the term EBITDA, 
um, which is uh, earnings before tax, interest, um, earnings before earnings before interest, tax, and uh, 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 amortization. And then it's a so so basically looking at what that free cash flow is, and applying some type of multiplier to that. And in our industry, I've 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 heard ranges. Okay, so that's the that's the tricky part is that I've heard a range of what that multiplier is. I've heard as low as uh, 1.85. I've heard as high as $4, uh, uh, um, you know, or, or 4X, right? So that's, so, so, so to put it into, you know, perspective, let's say that your, your EBITDA or your free cash flow on an annual basis, $100,000. On the high end, we would multiply that by four and say that your company is worth four hundred thousand dollars on the low end we're looking at you know 1.85 we're looking at one hundred eighty-five thousand dollars. now to some people who who are listening and they're like oh my gosh our profit is a hundred thousand dollars and the maximum our company is worth is only four hundred thousand dollars they're thinking well that's you know that's not you, a lot of people would think that their company is worth a lot more than that when you know when it's not. Um, so that's something to you know just kind of consider. Do you have some thoughts here? Oh, I could, I could. We could spend an hour on this topic alone, Torland. And and you said demystifying <laughs> it. I think that's a a pretty good term. You are one hundred percent accurate. I'm telling you and to your listeners. It is all about cash flow, okay? And it's all yep. about a multiple of cash flow. And I think what gets confusing sometimes is, let's use your high end a minute, all right? Sure. So if if the ESOP buys the company for $400,000, but you're going to continue working, and running the company and getting paid a salary and all that, you know, you're still getting um, paid and the money and the value. But over time then, and a lot of times what happens is the, the ESOP will pay you out over, it could be a 10-year period, right? It could be a, mm -hmm. a long-term seller note payout. But EBITDA is absolutely 99% of the time, and I'm involved with this. I serve on, not only are we an ESOP, I serve on two other companies that are uh, an ESOP, and we look at acquisition opportunities, and 99% of the time, it's EBITDA-driven. Mm -hmm. And the key, I think, for everybody, and, and I would say this with or without, um, an ESOP structure, growing your EBITDA. If you really want to get the most value you can out of your company, whenever that is, and whether it's selling to an ESOP or not, drive your EBITDA. I mean, yeah. just drive, you know, the growth of the EBITDA, the multiple is always tricky. And, I'll, and the reason that's tricky is the difference between a strategic buyer and a financial buyer. Okay. And what I mean by that is, is if you can sell your company to a bigger business that's already has the overhead and infrastructure in place, mm -hmm. they're going to pay up. They're going to pay more because they don't have 
the same overhead structure you do. They're able to oh, have a gonna, higher even. Yeah, because what they're going to do is they're going to come in and, and gut some of your costs because they already have those things in place. They are, you know, we're leveraging economies of scale. And so if they, if they come in and buy and they look at your, you know, your marketing prices and your, you know, shop costs and all this, or even they look at, they might even look at, you know, some of your material costs. Material costs is a great example. Let's say that you're, you're buying materials and because you're, you know, smaller, you've been, you've only been able to leverage a discount of, you know, let's say 30% max on your products. But because they're huge, they're able to leverage a discount of, you know, 50 or 60 percent. Well, all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, even though they're looking at your financial statement and they're and they're looking at your materials as, you know, 20 percent of revenue, um, then they're going to say, well, we're obviously going to get to get that down to 10 percent. So there's more, you know, so there's more cash flow. Right. So right. that that makes that makes a ton of sense. The, the other thing I will say about EBITDA and multiples, the higher your EBITDA is, the multiple can go up exponentially also. Meaning right. if if you're if you're you know generating a half a million, five hundred thousand of EBITDA, you're gonna get a higher multiple than somebody who's generating a hundred. Just because people like most buyers, investors, so forth, like to the deal cash. with <laughs> a big, well, and it's, but it's a bigger organization that can, the argument is it can, it can also absorb the ups and downs better, right? If you've got a bigger right. organization, a bigger structure in place, you're, you're just able to, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so, and, and what I've also noticed with, with that valuation, um, I don't know. I'd probably even try to get at the at the beginning. I'd probably try to get multiple opinions because, you know, so I've just seen people value it differently, you know, and, and sometimes, um, you know, it doesn't seem like there's pure data driving the valuation. There's like you said, there's a difference between the financial buyer and the strategic buyer where the strategic buyer there, there may be placing a bigger bet because they know that they can leverage what's there. Whereas a financial buyer is is probably just purely looking at the, the nuts and bolts and the numbers, assuming that they're not going to change anything about the way that it's operating. Is that correct? That that is correct. You 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 really you you've kind of nailed the the valuation dilemma or dilemmas plural of it's it's a difficult. There is no black and white. This is what it's worth or not worth. Because again, you got to have a willing buyer and a willing seller. And depending mm -hmm. on the circumstances on both sides, it's going to, it's going to either drive the value up or down. It's, it's, you know, right. So. Yeah. And there's a, there's a little bit of a negotiation there. Okay. So, so once we have the, the valuation, you know, so let's, let's just say that we've, you know, done tremendously successful and um, you know, we've got a million dollars in EBITDA uh, flowing annually. So, so our valuation is higher, but now we're, we have our, um, we have our employee pool going to purchase this company where before we had, you know, we had re-retained 100% ownership of the shares. We probably don't even have a number of shares uh, because we just, you know, what's the point? We just have, you know, 
uh, you know, the company, especially if you're in that LLC structure. If you're a, a C corp, you probably have already set how many shares. And you know what? I think what I've heard is the general rule of thumb is like you might start at about 10 million shares, and that allows you to kind of distribute it to multiple shareholders. But there's no hard or fast rule on this, right? Like you could you could do 10 million, you could do a million, you could do a hundred thousand shares. You know, you it's it's not a hard fast rule. You just decide, right? It's and the key thing there is to understand that. Let's use your million EBITDA example, all right? Mm -hmm. And if you're running a million of EBITDA, you're probably going to get a five or six multiple, possibly. I, I don't. Again. It depends, sure. but let's assume you're going to get a five, five multiple. So that's $5 million. Now, what happens most of the time, the ESOP, if you think about it, the employees don't have a bunch, they don't have money, right? So right. they're either going to borrow the 5 million from a, from a bank or outside party, or they're going to, the seller, you, if you were, if it was mm -hmm. your company, you would sell it on contract and they're going to pay you out over the next 10 years. Right. But so what's that mean? Okay. I've got a $5 million company, but I borrowed 5 million against it. So my right. value, my share value day one is zero oh, because I okay. borrowed all the money. It's like buying a house. Yeah. Right. It's like buying a house, but I borrowed all the money. I don't really own the house. The bank owns the house. Right. Yeah. Right. But, but what happens is, and this is a really another significant benefit, if that company can start paying down debt, and that's where you build up equity. You're, right. you're leveraged up at the beginning, but the ESOP pays down over time, and you, as long as the company continues, you know, you and I have talked about this before. Company's got to be profitable. Yeah, you don't want to do an ESOP unless you have a lot of confidence in the company and the company's you got to you got to treat it just like you would if it was your own baby. Hmm. It's just mm -hmm. over time you're transitioning that ownership to the employees. Hey there, I bet business is probably picking up for you right now and things are feeling good and using the right tools like Estimate Rocket can help keep it that way. Estimate Rocket offers professional estimates and proposals with digital signature, single source work orders for the entire team, lead to paid job management, full scheduling tools with mapping and time tracking, automated email campaigns, invoicing that exports to any accounting system, and deep data analysis reports. Go to EstimateRocket.com for a free 30-day trial to see if Estimate Rocket is a fit for you. Yeah, and I and I think it's I think it's worth it to note that um, in, in our industry in particular, if you are looking to sell your business, even if you're not, you know, even if maybe ESOP is on the table, but maybe it's not. Maybe you're just looking to exit, and and you'll sell it to anybody. Um, the likelihood of the bank financing the purchase of the company. It's it's going to be a I th it's going to be a harder sell. It's going to be a harder pitch to get that I think than to do an owner finance. And so, um, a lot of the companies you know listening, are, if you're going to try to sell your company, you need to entertain the idea of a company approaching you, another company or a buyer approaching you and saying, 
well, we'll the only deal that we're going to entertain is a is a seller finance deal, because realistically, I think that that's probably you know, I mean, I'm just making this up, but it's probably like nine out of ten deals are going to be owner financed rather than the person coming to you with you know four hundred thousand dollars in cash and saying, "Here, I want your company." I I think that's probably a pretty safe um, assumption in in your industry. What I would say is if it, once again, if it's a bigger company, the bigger you are and the more successful historically you've been, if, if there's a track record there, you probably can get bank financing and maybe it's 25% of the deal or maybe it could even be 50% of the deal, but you are correct. It, uh, what, and what a seller note does First of all, it allows the seller, the owner, the current owner, to get paid out over time. So they spread the tax burden out over time as they're getting paid mm-hmm. over time. But it's also a vote of confidence by the by the seller to say, look, I have confidence in this team and I'm willing to carry a note. I'm I'm the I'm the bank, or at least I'm part of the bank, and right. I've got enough confidence in this company that and a bank will look at that as, and a lot of times they'll want you to subordinate, meaning if there were problems, the bank's first in line mm-hmm. to get paid and the seller right. would be second, right? right. That's pretty right. common. Right. Um, but if you think about it, the bank can look at that seller note. If, they're, if you subordinate or the owner subordinates, that's like equity. Because they can stop, they can stop making those, stop you from making those payments, and they get paid first. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that that makes sense. I think you know the uh, the bigger the company that you are, and the 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 more cash flow, the more stability, the the length of time that you've been in business is obviously going to make you a safer bet. To the to the companies that have you know less of a track record, you know, maybe, a sh- you know, in, in terms of time or, you know, volume, I've, I've heard, you know, this, we, I had a guy on named JB Brown, who he deals in the, in this, uh, you know, in, in the buying and selling of, of businesses all, all the time. And, you know, he, he basically said, if you're less than five, $5 million, um, you know, can you negotiate a deal? Sure. Um, you know, is it going to be what, you know, is it going to be as a, as the seller, is it going to be all that you ever dreamed it would be? Probably not, but you'll get something. But he said, things get really interesting after that $5 million mark, you know, you know, the equity firms, um, banks, they really start to, you know, if they can see that, then things start to get interesting. Um, I, I would say below that, that it, you know, you probably again would be looking at more of a seller uh, finance deal. I think that's a very that's a good mark. Five, yeah, it it really is. And uh, unfortunately, bigger in this case, bigger is presumed to be better. I'm not saying it always is, but yeah, <laughs> it, you know, it, it it that's the norm in out out there that the bigger you are, the more investors, value, perception, everything else. Um, So, 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I like, yeah, exactly. And I, and I like that you, you know, said that it's, you know, presumed to be, but not always, because there are a lot of listeners here who I think, you know, they, they get, they get attached to that idea of, of driving big revenue and, you know, they, they strive for it at all costs, but sometimes it just causes more problems than, you know, you really might actually want, like there's, there's really nothing wrong with, um, you know, building a lifestyle business where you've delegated enough pieces to where, you know, you, you find fulfillment in the job that you have, but you have flexibility and you have the money. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm on a personal crusade to figure out how to, uh, you know, how to generate a hundred thousand dollar income or six figure income on four painters. I think it's possible. Um, that's not a huge company though. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, for people listening, I think you really have to decide, like you said, you have to pick your poison. You have to figure out what problems that you want to have on a day-to-day basis, because, you know, it's, it is a more money, more problems thing, you know, like you, you make the bigger you build your business, the harder, uh, things can, can become. And you have to be prepared for the level of um, uh, risk and liability that you take on when you're when you're bigger. Yeah, I I mean, I know a lot of smaller, successful um, business owners, entrepreneurs, and, and I have a ton of respect because in a lot of ways it's it's tougher to run a, a, a smaller business just because, you know, you just don't have as many people and resources. I mean, we've got about a hundred employees and uh, because we've been around 85 years, we've got a lot of processes and, you know, and I mean, we have our challenges, don't get me wrong because we're, we're, we have 20 retail stores and we have a lot of turnover at the retail level, but, right. But nonetheless, I've got a lot of people that have, you know, been around 20, 30 years and they know what to do when there's a problem. So again, pros and cons of of both, you know, totally, totally. So, so once you've, um, you know, once you've kind of jumped through that valuation cycle, you know what, what it's worth. And, and I, and I I don't know if we mentioned this, but basically what we're going to do is we're going to take the valuation we're going to take the number of shares that you want that you're willing to distribute. And it's just a simple division. You take the, you know, the value of the company, divide it by the number of shares, and that gives you your stock option uh, price, right? Am I right about that? Yeah. And it's not actually a stock option price. It's a stock price per share. And then every year, a lot of times you'll see somebody that they'll, they'll release those shares maybe out over a 10 or 15 year period going out. And each year, one tenth or one fifteenth of those shares get allocated to the employees. Okay. And the key thing to understand with that is it, it really doesn't matter what level you're at. If you're at a $35,000 annual comp versus a 60,000, you're going to get the same percentage of shares every year. So if you're making 10% more than me, you're getting 10% more shares. If you're making 10% less than me, you're getting 
less shares, but it's an equal distribution mm-hmm. based upon okay. annual W-2 compensation. So it's okay. a very democratic kind of allocation of those shares. Yeah, yeah, it's it's equitable. It's based on it's it's based on your contribution. There's not there's not um, you know special treatment only as as far as like you are you know providing value to the company. And it's presumed that if you're in a higher level of leadership or or in in a different state that the you know amount of value that you drive for the company is higher and so um i I think that makes sense to me so let me let me recap this because i want to make sure that i'm understanding it right so you're going to distribute one tenth of the shares to employees every year over the course of a 10-year period is that right or it could be 15 or 20 again you just set the terms there yeah yeah and and those terms can be adjusted later like you don't have to figure exactly out because if the company does real well, then sometimes you might spread the shares out longer because you're, you're allocating so much value. You gotta, you gotta manage the, cause at some point you gotta buy those shares back. Right. So you right, gotta right. make sure that doesn't get too big of a number. So there's a, right. there's, but yes, yeah, sorry. I'm probably getting overly, technical no no that's that's good so yeah i mean that and that that was one of my you know concerns is like okay if you're if you're going to entertain this idea recognize that um yeah as a company when your employees decide to uh exercise their options um and uh and and you know sell the shares back to the company to get the money you have to have the money to to pay your people right you do but here's the good thing the only time you have to pay somebody out is if they retire just say when I say have to pay them out you can if they retire because a death or disability is the only thing that requires you to pay it out if they would leave the company and they've already earned invested in those shares you can actually wait until you paid off the loan that was used uh, to, to buy the company. You can use that as a, 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 where you don't have to buy people out. My point is nobody can like force a bunch of cash demand on you mm. just because they leave the company. Got it. Got it. Got it. So yeah. Cause what, what's happening here is that, um, you know, I think you mentioned now there's, there's a lot of different ways that you could do this and you can pull these levers how you want to. But I think what you said in your case is that there's a two year cliff, meaning that, um, they have to be with the company for two years before they, um, start vesting in the options that you've given them. They are earning those options during that two year period. But if they leave before the end of the two year period, they're, their options and their shares are gone. They start vesting at that point. And you said that it, it takes, uh, it's a six year cycle for them to, to vest fully, but each year after that, they're vesting 25%. And that's what makes it a six year cycle, correct? Yeah, right. It's um, if you, if you kind of go with the year two is 20% and then it's actually 20% more. So year three is, you'd be at uh, 40 and then 
60, ah. 80, 100. So at the end of six years, they're 100% vested and those shares, they, they can't be taken away from them. Right. Those are their shares. Yeah. Those are their shares. Yeah. And if they leave, can you explain that to me one more time? Let's say they get to the six years and then they've, they've, they're they've 100% vested and then they leave. What happens? If, if at that point you have a lot of different options, if you want to go ahead and buy them out, sometimes ESOPs will say, we really don't want shares in the hands of non-active participants who have already left the company. If you've got the liquidity and the cash, you go ahead and buy those shares out. But oh, okay. what I was, there's also protections that are built in where the corporation, again, unless they're retire, uh, have reached retirement age, death or disability, what, what the ESOP structure typically is set up to do is protect the corporation so that you don't have to fund a bunch of unexpected terminations or people that have left and they've, and they've got their money. So it's, you know, the, the whole idea is to make sure that corporation is a long-term corporation that can, that has the proper liquidity uh -huh. and balance sheet and everything to go. So in those cases, you have options where you can pay that out over five years. If you want to, you can hold on. If there's a loan, um, still in place, you can hold on to those. You don't have to buy out any of those shares if they're still. Oh, because, because the debt, because if you carry debt, they have first rights to the profits. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a protection for making sure the company pays off the loan one. Right. But it, but it's also a liquidity control where you don't want to, you don't want to run on the bank or whatever you right. You don't want to uh, right. bunch of people leave. And now you, you've got to pony up a whole bunch of money. The, it, the, it's structured to protect the corporation. Does your business need more reviews? Nice job can help. Our reputation marketing platform automates review invites to save you time. Reviews are collected and distributed across major platforms such as Google, Facebook, and more. Turn your reviews into customer stories with photos that you can share across your social channels. Nice Job allows you to manage all of this within our platform. Start your free trial today. Got it. The got business it, got entity. It. Yeah. Yeah. But regardless, it's still money that you owe that person because they're fully vested. They did give you six years of their life where they could have been starting their own business. And, you know, so, so that is money that you owe, but the, the idea is that you owe it. There's going to be a, a plan to make it more um, uh, just to, just to give, you know, stretch out that payment over time so that it's not the, the a huge burden on the, on the business in the short term. That's right. That's exactly okay. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So that's, you know, maybe like, you know, a, a worst case scenario, somebody gives you six years and then they're gone and it's like, Oh, I owe the money. But over time there's, there are tons of benefits, right? And, and there's a reason why you guys, uh, chose the ESOP. There's a reason why you you get involved in in other ESOP companies. That's because you believe in it. 
what are the overarching benefits? What would what would my life look like as a as a business owner if I decided to, uh, you know, convert to an ESOP and and share this uh, ownership across my employee base? So, um, I'll, I'll use our case um, as an example. Um, and then again, I, I serve on a couple other ESOP boards and uh, corporations that are ESOPs. And, and it's fortunate because in all cases here, the companies are, are successful and the benefits are have become pretty substantial. In general, a lot of companies will target like a 10% benefit level per year on that stock release. If you can line that up to where... So in effect, 10% of somebody's annual comp would be set aside. Now, if the company does well, those that 10% that I gave you year one, two, three, four, it can it can grow pretty substantially. And you know, in our case, it's 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 well above a 50% level where we've been able to match over 50% of a person's compensation because of the stock price increase and allocation of shares over the years and they're vested. So, and what we have found is it's, it's really good for retention, you know, retention Mm -hmm. of employees and it becomes a, a, a very significant benefit to the employees. The other thing to keep in mind is, and I apologize if I've already said this once, but I get, I'm old, I'm getting old here, Orlando. <laughs> uh, but it's a, the, the earnings of the company flow into the ESOP trust and it's non-taxable. So the K-1, right. if it's a 100% owned company, ESOP owned company, all the earnings flow into this trust and you don't pay any corporate income tax. Yeah. It's a heck of yeah. a benefit. That's a major benefit for sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, incredible. Cool. Um, Kevin, I, I appreciate your time on the show today. Um, tell us, tell us a little bit more about, uh, you know, Colokin and, and we'll, we'll wrap the show up. Yeah. Well, again, we really appreciate, I, I appreciate on behalf of Coquilene, uh, we're 85 year old company. We've got 20 retail discount tobacco stores. We used to be in the convenience store industry and sold out of that. Uh, but we've got 20 discount tobacco stores. And then we own about 800,000 square feet of warehouse space in Southern Indiana. So we provide um, warehousing space and logistics support to the manufacturing and, and distribution businesses in our region, which is um, Jackson County, Seymour, Indiana area, John Mellencamp awesome. territory. Yeah. <laughs> John Mellencamp. Yeah. Small he's, town, uh, man. That's the small town, you know? That's right. Yeah. No, John <laughs> Mellencamp is, uh, he, he, he lives in my town. He, he, you'll, you'll see oh. him every now and then. So, Oh yeah. You're uh, in Bloomington, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm in Bloomington. So, uh, yeah, for sure. Well, awesome. I appreciate your time and, uh, yeah. Thank you for being on the show. Orlando, it was great. Enjoyed it. Take care. All right. There we have it, uh, folks. Mr. Kevin Johnson from Coquilene uh, talking about ESOPs. 
that was an education for me, uh, for sure. I, I, I didn't know a lot about them. Um, I had heard about them and uh, had, have always been curious. And so I hope that was helpful to the folks that have been out there asking. This was actually, this conversation was actually spurred from a comment, a post that was on the Facebook group, the Painted Facebook group. And I, you know, I, I looked at the, you know, the comment thread, realized that there wasn't a good response, a good answer. And so I said, well, let me find an expert. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's what I've done. And that's what this show has been today. So thank you for, uh, Mr. Johnson for taking the time to educate our industry a little bit more. Um, if you want to listen to this show again, um, you know, make sure that you are subscribed, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, and don't forget to watch that video portion, the video recording at PCA overdrive. Um, check that out on the app store, go to PCAPaintEd.org. If you are a member of the PCA, share, share with your fellow contractors, how awesome this is. And, uh, and check out for events in your area. Uh, my name is Torlando. Uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to be your host today. Thank you for listening to PaintEd. PaintEd podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org.